The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Having said that, let's go to the Word of God and I ask you to stand as we do in respect for God and His Word as we read Acts chapter 9 and verses 1 to 21. Would you stand with me with your Bibles, please? The Word of God says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am. And the ho- Here I am. He said, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And we trust God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Please have a seat. Every encounter to Christ is a result, sorry, every conversion to Christ is a result of an encounter with Christ. A few encounters were physical, bodily encounters, like Saul had and others in the New Testament. 
Some encounters are visions of Christ, and we hear stories from overseas of Muslims who are seeing visions of Jesus Christ and coming to faith in Him. But all conversions are spiritual encounters as God's Holy Spirit ministers to and in our hearts to bring us to understand something of who Christ truly is and to understand that we are truly sinners, to bring us to faith in God, repentance of sin, to convert us from sinners to saints, from enemies of God to sons and daughters of God, from persecutors of Christ to preachers of Christ. And the question is, have we all encountered Christ? And are we living this life in a continual encountering of Him day by day as we walk with Him by faith? Now Luke, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit and under the apostolic supervision of the Apostle Paul, here describes Saul's encounter with Christ to help us to understand something very important. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace to save. Even one who persecuted and murdered Christians, that Christ is truly God, risen, exalted, and glorious, that He is sovereign in His salvation of sinners, that Christ is gracious, immensely gracious, in the salvation of His people. Luke Luke writes to help us understand that conversion... It's not merely a regret for sin. Conversion is not merely head knowledge about Christ and the gospel. Conversion is not merely an emotional experience. All true conversions are an ongoing encounter with the glorified risen Christ. Now in these pages in the book of Acts, we've seen so far in the context the conversion of thousands to Christ in Jerusalem and the church established. We've seen the conversion of great crowds in Samaria and we've seen the false conversion of Simon the magician. Then we saw last week the true conversion of the Ethiopian on the desert road. Now in Saul's conversion, we will see something of conversion as an encounter with Christ that all conversions truly are. Now yes, as you read the story, you'd say his conversion encounter was a very unique one. And we would say, yes, that's true. But there are typical aspects to it that all conversions share. So the question we want to ask this morning, first of all, is who is this Jesus Christ that we encounter in conversion? What does the text, speaking about Saul's conversion, convey to us and unfold to us about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I want you to notice, first of all, that Christ is glorious in His holiness. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 3, we see as Saul is traveling that a light from heaven shone around Saul and falling to the ground, he heard a voice. From Acts chapter 26 and verse 13, sorry, I should have mentioned earlier, in the recounting of Saul's conversion stories, Acts give us not one, not two, but three different recountings of how Saul came to know the Lord. And in Acts chapter 26... He says there that at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me 
and those who journeyed with me. The risen, exalted Jesus Christ is glorious as God Almighty. Jesus is no longer the humble carpenter from Nazareth. Yes, he's still truly man, even today, and truly God, but he is no longer looks like a simple, ordinary, first century Jewish man. If you and I were to encounter Jesus in his earthly appearance as he walked by us in the street, if we never said anything to each other, it's likely that we would not know anything about him. We need no stories in the New Testament where he walked amongst crowds and they didn't know who he was. No idea. But the Lord Jesus Christ now is glorious. It's all changed. This description given to us here in Acts chapter 9 is a description of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and it's in his glory. And that description is consistent with other texts that describe God in His glory. For example, in Psalm 104, verse 2, the Bible says that the Lord wraps Himself in light as with a garment. In Matthew 17 and Mark chapter 9, we see that Jesus gave three of His disciples a glimpse of His glory as He was transfigured before them and His clothing was as white as light. In 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, the Bible says, Paul writing, that God is the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. That's a description of our glorious Lord Jesus. Christ who appeared to Saul as he traveled on his way is the glorious, resurrected, exalted Lord. And that glory had an effect on Saul. How could it not? Christ caused Saul to fall to the ground. And Saul's response is similar to others throughout the Bible who saw the glory of God. Consider Judges 13 and verse 2. Manoah and his wife there, they meet the angel of the Lord. And as they realize who he is, they fall on their faces before him. In Joshua 5 and verse 14, Joshua when confronted by the captain of the army of the Lord, who is the Son of God Himself, He fell to the ground and worshipped Him, and the captain of the army of the Lord received His worship without hesitation, signifying that He is God. In Matthew 17 and verse 6, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the disciples heard that pronouncement that Jesus is the beloved Son of God, they fell on their faces terrified of what they were hearing and seeing. And in Luke 5 verse 8, Jesus in the boat with Peter. And Peter realizing in a sudden moment who Jesus truly is. And that realization confronts Peter with who he truly is. And he fell down at Jesus' knees pleading for him to leave because he was a sinful man. Listen, beloved. The light was not simply so blinding that Saul fell to the ground. It was the holiness of God reflected in that light that caused Saul's dramatic response of falling to the ground. The attribute of God's holiness describes the purity and the majesty of God both in His essence as God and His actions towards His creation. God is holy and therefore wholly separate from sin. 
God's holiness highlights to our own souls our utter sinfulness. When man comes face to face with Almighty God, absolutely holy, his own sinfulness is the first thing he really grasps about himself. Remember Isaiah? He's standing there and the vision of God is absolutely holy before him. And the only thing that Isaiah can say is, woe is me. And I don't think he stood there and looked up and said, woe is me. I think he curled up in a ball with his hands over his head like the seraphim with their wings in front of their faces and said, woe is me. His own sinfulness slammed into him at that moment as he was confronted by a very holy God. Christ confronted Saul on the road to Damascus in the white-hot glory of His absolute holiness. And that's why Saul falls to the ground, because he is a sinner. The holiness of God causes men to fall down and to tremble in fear because God is holy and we are not. Which, when you stop and think, I'm going to jump ahead of my message almost, but we were singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound has saved a wretch like me. When you consider for a moment the holiness of God, and then you realize that God saved you, He saved me. The only response we can have is great is the grace of God, that He would save us. Holiness of God causes men to fall down and to tremble in fear because God is holy and we are not. God's holiness and sinlessness drives home to us that we are sinners. We're defiled and filthy before God. That if we were to fall into God's hands, we would be crushed. One of the ways, beloved, that we know that we have a genuine conversion is that the converted have a deep and profound sense of their own sinfulness before God. This year is an interesting year for me. Forty years ago this year, the Lord saved me. Thirty years ago this year, I began preaching, and this is ten years now for me as a pastor. You know what I've discovered in forty years? I'm a great sinner. My God is a great Savior. All the theology in all the world, you can sum it up like this. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. A God who is so holy that He cannot tolerate sin in His presence reached out in grace to reach a hold of you and me and draw us to Himself just as He's doing here with Saul. Saul, the persecutor who became Paul the Apostle, could write many years later in 1 Timothy 1, 15-16, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief, but I received mercy, Paul says. Sometimes I joke and I say I think it's the only verse in the Bible that Paul got just a little bit wrong. Because I look at my own heart and I think I'm the chief of sinners, Paul. I think every one of us who knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ can put ourselves in Saul's shoes, Paul's shoes, and say, I'm the chief of sinners, but I have received mercy. 
God's wrath as an almighty, holy God. That's what we have to deal with. My question this morning is we come together as we sit around, we have the word of God open before us. I will not make the assumption that every single person sitting in every one of these seats knows and truly knows the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. So my question for you is, have you had that encounter with Christ, the holy God Almighty? Because here's the, here's the solid truth of Scripture. You must deal with God. You will deal with Him now or in a day, the great day of God's judgment, but by then it will be too late. On the day of judgment, we will all stand before God and every single person from Hitler and Stalin and every other monster that has come forward, all of them will bow the knee and raise their voice and shout that Jesus Christ is Lord. But they'll do so, the unbelieving, as they are condemned to an eternity in hell. We who bow the knee before Christ in this day, in this hour, and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, and submit our lives to do Him, to, to Him, we will from that moment be singing it as our song of praise. He's Lord. He's Lord. I want you to notice, secondly, that Christ is sovereign in His salvation. If you notice in Acts chapter 9 and verse 4, And falling to the ground, Saul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. And notice that Christ is speaking to Saul from the light, similar to when the Lord spoke to Moses from out of the middle of the burning bush. Notice that Christ took the initiative to come to Saul. Saul had no desire whatsoever, no inclination, no regard for Christ. But Christ came down to speak with Saul. Saul was not going seeking for Christ, but Christ spoke directly to Saul, although the others there heard him in his saving of us, beloved Christ comes to us, awakening us and causing us to become spiritually alive so that we can respond. Christ must come to us because left to ourselves, we will never go to Christ. You say, well, how do I know that? Well, the Bible tells me in Romans 3 and verses 11 and 12 that Saul said, or Paul at that point wrote, none seeks for God. And he adds a verse later, No, not one. Jesus himself said in John 15 and verse 16, looking at his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Christ is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. Christ did not come to speak to Paul and his traveling companions. He addressed Saul specifically and emphatically with repetition. You say, well, didn't his travel companions need to hear the gospel as well? Yeah, I'm sure they did. Absolutely. They're sinners. They need to hear it as well. But Christ in that moment, sovereign, came and spoke directly to Saul. They heard the voice, yet as far as we can tell from the text, they were not saved or converted. Christ as God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. So what does that mean? I mean, we use terms all the time, but sometimes I wonder if we all really understand what it means that He's sovereign. 
Scripture gives us a few clues to understand God's sovereignty. For example, in Acts 4, uh, sorry, Isaiah 46 and verses 9 to 11, Isaiah the prophet is speaking for God and he writes, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and, pardon me, I will do it. Daniel 4, verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar confessed that God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And this is what he said. He said, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In Romans 9, verses 15 and 16, the apostle Paul, defending this great truth of God's sovereignty in salvation says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The sovereignty of God is God's absolute authority and power to accomplish all His will as the supreme ruler of all things. God exercises His sovereignty through His decrees and His actions, which are planned and purposed in complete independence from anything outside himself and enacted throughout salvation history. I'm going to read that again. God exercises his sovereignty through his decrees and actions which are planned and purposed in complete independence from anything outside of himself and enacted throughout salvation history. God is sovereign over all his creation and over our salvation. Christ is sovereign in saving sinners. Now I can hear some of you going, just hold on. As they say in Australia, hold your horses, mate. No, 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 no. I chose Christ. I came to Christ and then he saved me. To which Paul would respond from Ephesians 2. And this is what he says. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. (laughs) Two of the greatest words in the whole Bible But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, did you catch that? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. God makes us alive so that we can cry to God to save us. Christ comes to Saul. Christ calls out to him. And Christ reveals himself to Saul, speaking those words, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul was not seeking for Christ, but Christ came to him. We 
left her own devices, will never seek for Christ. He must first come to us. And some immediately say, oh, if you, you preach that, you talk about that, you know what will happen? Everybody will stop preaching the gospel. No. A thousand times no. Knowing that God sovereignly purposes to save his people through the preaching of the gospel and that God accomplishes their salvation without anyone who can restrain him or question him, that gives us great freedom to preach and proclaim the gospel. I don't preach the gospel in the faint hope that God might save some. I preach the gospel in the conviction that in the preaching of the gospel, God saves sinners. And that was the theology of men like Spurgeon and Whitfield and so many others. Christ Christ is sovereign in his salvation. Beloved, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you can rejoice that God has sought you out and called your name. And open the eyes of your heart and your understanding to understand what the gospel is. You can rejoice and give thanks and worship the Lord this morning that he chose you and he saved you. And for the rest of us, for some here who don't know Christ, if you hear in your heart the voice of God calling you, he's calling you. He longs for you to come to bow the knee to claim Christ as Savior and to walk with Him for the rest of your life. Christ is holy and glorious in His exaltation. Christ is sovereign in salvation, but Christ is also gracious in salvation. Christ is gracious in saving Saul who has no merit with God. Saul was persecuting the church. Saul had seized and imprisoned and tortured Christians. Saul had attempted to make Christians deny Christ and blaspheme his holy name. Saul's persecution was not merely against Christians, but as the Lord says here, against him. Because all our sin is ultimately against Christ himself, against God himself. Saul had even cast his vote to execute and martyr Christians. But in grace, beloved, Try and put your head around that if you can. You won't get far, but try. The very one who is taking the beloved people of the Lord, torturing, murdering, burning homes, destroying lives, Christ in grace comes to him. Nobody is beyond the reach of God to save And just as an aside, if you're praying for someone who just seems so stubbornly to refuse the gospel and keeps pushing it away and seems to have no desire for God or gospel, I plead with you, don't stop praying because God delights to show himself powerful to save those whom some of us foolishly think are beyond the reach of the gospel. Why should we pray for the salvation of men like Daniel Andrews? So many others who clearly have such an anti-God, anti-Christian agenda. Because as we can see right here, God delights to save men like that and show himself as powerful. Christ is gracious in saving us. 
Saul's persecution, as we said, is not merely against Christians, but against the Lord Jesus himself. Saul was a sinner before God. And beloved, in order to understand what grace truly is, we have to understand just how undeserving we truly are. Saul was a sinner before God just as surely as all of us are. Saul was hostile towards God. In Acts 7 verse 58, he approved of Stephen's death. In chapter 8 and verse 3, he ravaged the church, dragging men and women to prison. In 9 and verse 1, He's still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples. Saul was clearly, actively hostile against God. He had rejected Israel's Messiah, the Savior for all mankind. And beloved, so were we hostile toward God. Having our minds set not on God, but on our flesh, entirely on ourselves. Romans 8 verse 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not to submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Now, I can guess again, some of you are thinking to yourselves, what do you mean? How dare you say that I'm hostile against God? I'm not hostile to God. I barely even think about God. How could you say I'm hostile against God? Well, we're hostile towards God in two ways, passively and actively. We're passively hostile towards God by being careless and thoughtless of God, in effect, disregarding God in our thinking and our acting and our doing. How can we, sorry, how can being thoughtless and careless of God be hostility? Beloved, is there any greater insult that we can level against Christ and God than to be utterly careless and thoughtless? about him. I watched a, a video clip. It was a courtroom and they brought this, this fella in and he sat in the accused table. It was American court. And uh, the judge addressed him and said, you know, would the accused please stand? And he slid down in his chair and just folded his arms and just stared off to one side. And she kept saying, would the accused, Mr. So-and-so, would you please stand? And finally, they started to ask him some questions about just basic issues. And he had utter contempt for that court that he would not even look up at the judge and meet her eye to eye. That's contempt. And he was charged and and fined for contempt of court. Beloved, is there any greater insult that we can level at Christ our God than to be utterly careless and thoughtless for him to be thoughtless of God who created everything you and I to be thoughtless and careless for God who sustains all things including us by the word of his power to be careless for God who designed and created and cares for and protects and provides for you and I every minute of every day to be thoughtless for God is to be absolutely contemptuous of God and so we are passively hostile to God. But we are also actively hostile in this other sense. We sin against God every hour of every day. We're actively hostile against God by disobeying God's commands. We sin continually by not loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
We sin continually by not honoring God and glorifying God through complete obedience to all that God has told us to do. We sin every day by not delighting in God who is the highest, most valuable, most beautiful of beings in all existence. We're actively hostile against God by our sin and disobedience, both Saul and us. And all mankind in sin, we're all hostile against God. But yet, God is so gracious that He comes to Saul. He comes to call him to follow Christ, to preach for Christ, to write for Christ, to suffer and to die for Him. Christ speaks to Saul, but in grace. He could have come down and without coming down, he could have without even twitching, annihilated Saul out of existence for the things he was doing. And yet in grace he comes. In grace Christ speaks the words of truth to reveal himself to Saul. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. In grace Christ speaks to reveal the nature of Saul's sin which is ultimately against himself. In grace, sorry, Christ deals gently with Saul that he might save him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, God has dealt gently with you and I that he might save us. And if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I, with all my strength and with all I have, I'm telling you, God is dealing gently with you. In a day to come, God's restraint will be removed and you will know the unrelenting wrath of an almighty God against your sin, against you for your sin. In grace, God comes to you and says to you, why are you at war with me? Why are you utterly contemptuous of my existence so as not to even acknowledge it? In in grace, God says to you today, don't you understand all that stands between you and an eternity in an unrelenting hell is my gracious restraint. Sinner, why have you not bowed yourself before me in humility and confession of sin? Beloved, it is marvelous, immeasurable grace of God. It is in grace that God reaches out to his utterly rebellious creation to save some, to save you and save me. It's in grace that God decreed before creation that Christ should come and suffer for his people, Jew and Gentile together. It's in grace that God the Father chose those who will be saved. It's in grace that God sent his son to be the savior of the world. It's in grace that God the Spirit speaks to us to reveal our sinfulness to us and apply Christ's salvation to us. It is in grace that Christ now speaks to Saul and Christ is speaking to you in your heart. If you have ears to hear and a heart to listen and respond, I urge you, turn to Christ in repentance of sin and trust in Him. Well, that is the the God who saves us. I want us also this morning to consider Paul. Consider the, the way that he was changed and what God did in his life in those moments. 
Christ did not come to deal with all of Saul's external needs. Christ does not come to make merely, merely make Saul a bad person good. Christ came to make dead people to be alive to himself. Saul's conversion is not merely a regret, an emotional lament for sins committed. It's not merely learning and understanding gospel truths. It's not merely emotional experiences of God's spirit at work in our heart, our mole, our mind, and our soul. Conversion is not primarily about you becoming all that you could be. It's not primarily about you adding to your already great life by being a Christian to make it even better. It's certainly not about living your best life now because if you track Saul, Paul's life through the New Testament, you will quickly see that physically, socially, relationally, culturally speaking, it was a steady decline At Paul's salvation, he was a celebrated, brilliant young scholar and lawyer, a mover and shaker in Judaism, to being a condemned man on Rome's death row in Mamertine prison. It was a steady decline in one sense, but it was an absolute climb in the other. As he knew and loved and walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul, as scholars would suggest, was probably one of the three most brilliant men alive at that time. He would have ranked him one of the greatest philosophers, thinkers, and writers of his age. We would argue he did. He does rank there because look at what he wrote. He wrote a great chunk of the New Testament. He could have been anything he wanted. If you read Philippians 3 verses uh, 1 to 11, you will find there the story of what Paul could have been. He had everything. But his conversion was a complete and total change. His conversion was not man-centered. Christ did not come to deal with Saul's external needs. He didn't come to deal primarily with your and my external needs. He came to deal with the greatest need we have, which is reconciliation to God. I want you to notice that Saul's conversion and all true conversions are always Christ-focused. Notice that Paul makes two statements in the whole text of 9, 1 to 20. In verse 4, he says, Who are you, Lord? And then in verse 20, the theme of his preaching is Jesus, the Son of God. In Paul's question, he's not merely saying, Who are you, sir? Because as I understand it from my Greek-speaking friends, the word Lord there can mean sir, but not in this case. Scholars would argue very emphatically he is making the point that Saul is saying, who are you, Lord? Recognizing that he is truly God. He is clearly recognizing that this light from heaven, this voice from heaven, is indeed the voice of the Lord God Almighty. Conversion is, first of all, and most of all, a change of heart concerning God in the person of Christ. To Saul in that moment, confronted by the glorified Christ, he is convinced in his mind that this is God speaking to him. True conversion is always Christ-focused. 
True conversion demands our conscious sorry, acceptance and submission to Christ's claims about himself, his identity as, as God. Saul said himself as soon as he begins preaching that he is the Son of God. He has to be convinced about Christ's life as the Son of God made flesh and blood to be the Spirit-filled Savior of His people as He suffered and died. A person who is truly converted has to be convinced that Christ's death was to satisfy God's demand for justice against us and His resurrection was to make our justification possible. True conversion demands, beloved, and this is where I want to focus in on, obedience to Christ and Saul obeyed the Lord. He did exactly what he was told. He was taken to Damascus. He waited for Ananias to come and he immediately got up and began preaching Christ. And the rest of his life is lived in obedience to Christ, whether it involves being beaten, being stoned, being shipwrecked, being imprisoned, being flogged so many times, and ultimately laying his head upon the block and losing his head to a sword blow from a soldier. It was obedience for the rest of his life. It involved faith in Christ and repentance from sin to following Christ. Beloved, we cannot truly consciously claim to be followers of Christ and go on living in active disobedience against Christ. I absolutely reject wholeheartedly the notion that Christ can be Savior now and Lord sometime in the future. It is not that way in the Bible anywhere. When we come to Christ, we come to follow and trust in a God who saved us. We come to obey the God who saved us. The fundamental change in our lives is going from disobedience to obedience. And beloved, as we all sit here, for those who are believers in this, in this gathered group this morning, the question has to be asked as we stop and examine our lives in the light of Scripture, are we living lives that reflect and display obedience to Christ as Lord? As you look through Paul's life, as we're going to see it all the way to the end of the book of Acts, you're going to see a man who lived his life in obedience to God. That's the call on our lives. He lived his life by faith in Christ and he lived his life forever repenting of sin and turning away to follow Christ. So sitting here today, what are you going to do with a message like this? If you're walking in obedience and faith and repentance, it's time for us to stop and lift our hearts and our voices to heaven to praise the living God for such a salvation. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. The saved, a wretch like me. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain. For us who know and love and walk with the Lord, it's an opportunity to worship and give thanks and praise the living God for you who are here this morning claiming to be a believer in Christ, but you're living in ongoing disobedience, this, I pray, is a wake-up call to realize the God who has called you is a holy God. He's a glorious God. He's a gracious God. And He's calling you to return to life 
of obedience, to renew that faith and love that, and that you once held so dear. But for those who are sitting here who do not know Christ as Savior, I plead with you to listen and hear the voice of the living God. If you hear Him calling your name, I plead with you to respond. I remember the first time I really understood the gospel and really heard that voice. Not an audible voice. A voice in my heart speaking. I was a young guy, 12 years of age. And I resisted and fought and resisted and fought for months. I knew the gospel was absolutely true. Not a doubt in my mind. And I think deep down there was a piece of me that kind of said, yeah, I know that I'm going to give in to this one day. Because he was beginning to wear me down. God is gracious. But beloved, don't misunderstand. There will come a time when God's grace will be removed. What an amazing Savior we have. Amen.